a lot of the leaders I work with, their identity is completely constructed around them in their work setting. And if something happens in their work setting, whether that's a restructure or they have a bad performance year, all of a sudden their world is shattered because everything is wrapped up in that. So a lot of the leaders I work with, I, I'm very deliberate. What are you constructing around that? What are your practices around exercise? What are your practices around taking time out for yourself? When was the last time you booked a holiday when you were on the last holiday rather than getting to the end of the year completely exhausted? Um, because the point I make to them is you're role modeling everything to your organization. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO podcast, we go deep into the world of listening. As every human wants to be listened to, yet what, what they crave is to be heard. We learn about the five levels of listening, the art and science of listening, and the barriers to listening with our special guest who is the first son of two Italian post-war immigrants to Australia. He has an MBA in marketing from the Macquarie Graduate School of Management, a graduate diploma in international company directors from the Australian Institute of Company Director, an organizational coaching cert three from the Institute of Executive Coaching and Leadership, and is a Gallup Strengths coach. His career has involved sales, business development, and marketing roles at PeopleSoft, Professional Advantage, Vodafone, Microsoft, and Polycon. At present, he is a speaker, author, and mentor with Oscar Trimboli Limited and head of coaching faculty for the Marketing Academy Australia. I'm pleased to introduce to you a leader who loves experiential learning, connecting people to their passions, and creating impact beyond words. Oscar Trimboli. Oscar, welcome to the show. G'day Craig, I thought we were going to talk about my five marathons today, but sounds like we're going to be talking about listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can always talk about marathons as well, so here we go. You have an Italian heritage, you know, what was life like growing up as a child in Australia as the son of post-war immigrants? Yeah, look, I was pretty lucky. I grew up in a suburb that was where the first migrants to Australia came from. So I grew up in a suburb that was near the Villawood Migration Centre. It's now known as the Villawood Detention Centre. And I went to school with 23 different nationalities. So I think one of the things growing up in that part of the world was it taught me to be open to ideas. It helped me understand that people have backstories that you don't know about. Uh, people at my school were from parts of Eastern Europe and fleeing in the time of communism. There were people from South America fleeing military regimes and there were people fleeing the Vietnam War 
whether that was from Cambodia, Laos, as well as from Vietnam as well. So what it taught me is how to play cards with people in different nationalities. And even though I have dyscalculus, Craig, which means I'm really rubbish when it comes to using numbers, I transpose them. I wasn't good at counting cards, but I was great at listening to body language. And I think it was one of the first times looking back that I noticed that my listening gave me an unfair advantage when it comes to playing cards. Yeah, that diversity has an incredible influence on on our communication skills, both verbal and non-verbal when we're in situations where people might be speaking English second language or even no language. Yeah, I guess it smacked me in the face in my very first job. Ironically, uh, I started off life in an accounting firm and the partner or the owner of the accounting firm would have drinks on a Friday afternoon and on the third week there he came and said hello to me and he said, um, wow, um, you come from a long, long way away. I used to commute 90 minutes to work. He said, I've never moved out of a triangle that's 15 kilometers from where he worked. So he had the Sydney Cricket Ground, the Ramwick Racecourse and Coogee Beach as his kind of square box that he'd work in plus uh, George and uh, King Street in the city. And he would often make jokes about, do I have to change money at the border to come into Sydney? And he'd make jokes about what the, you know, the currency translation rate was. But I guess it was the first time, having grown up in an environment where everybody has a different background, it's the first time I struck somebody who went to the same school as his father, went to the same school as his grandfather, was in the same profession as both his father and his grandfather, and the kinds of people that he hung out with were pretty similar to whoever his grandfather and his, his father would have hung out with. And um, Bill taught me a lot about work ethic, but it was the first time a kind of mirror was put to me to go, there's a contrast in the world, and it's probably the opposite to what you think it is, Oscar. Yeah, those different perspectives and assumptions of being surrounded by such great diversity shape your view of the world, which is completely different to, say, you know, the person you're working for there. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, it didn't take too long for them to figure out I had dyscalculus. It was like six weeks in. So you could read out a telephone number to me 20 times and 16 out of 20, I'd get them right. Four out of 10, I'd get, uh, 20, I'd get them wrong. But that's kind of a career limiting move when it comes to accounting. Um, and they um, asked me if I wanted to install accounting software as it was in those days because everything we were doing in those days was on an A3 spreadsheet and it was paper and uh, difficult for people to imagine a world before computers and that was the world I operated in. I was the digital migrant moving from analog to digital and installing accounting software there. So the next people I had to start to listen to were the ladies in the typing pool and uh, they used to type balance sheets and profit and loss statements. And as a result, uh, I had to get tuned into a very different way of thinking because I need to get tuned into what's at risk for them. So that uh, when I spoke to Helen, I can remember, I can still picture her today. And she said, computer's going to take my job. And I'd say, oh, tell me more. And she'd say, you know, these things are just going to do it so much quicker. I won't have any work to do. Well, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. The accounting firm continued to grow and Helen never went out of work. But I think it was the moment where I said, tell me more, that I realized if you just don't deal with what they say straight away, but get them to explore it a little bit more, you, you go a layer deeper and you start to understand different kinds of motivations. And Helen became a champion for the accounting system. 
and uh, started to teach others in the secretarial pool or the typing pool. So you talked a little bit there around dyslexia and it's quite often common among some of the most successful and deep thought leaders of the world. So yes, you may have struggled a little bit with numbers, but you then had, you have something else that brings a specialness to the world, you know, and I think that's where you've led, obviously later on in your career into that deep listening aspect. How, mm. how did you really manage that dyslexia at that time, you know, like as a young person or even through that early career on, on the way you thought and felt? I, I didn't know it was an issue. I didn't know that I had it going through, you know. It's like when you start to use numbers every day with, with dyscalculus, it's kind of, okay, it's in your face, but going to school, you know, it should have been an early hint. I was struggling with maths at school, uh, but my dad always said something to me and one of the things I inherited from my Italian origins and my dad's family particularly, as well as my mum's family, is work ethic. My dad said, you can never be the smartest in the room, but you can always be the hardest working in the room and kind of became a rod for my own back later in the second part of my career because the answer to every problem was work harder where in reality it's quite often you know just look at it a little bit differently so for me growing up I was um, I, I would study furiously um, weekends were only sport and study and uh, you know any free time was work or study and then when it was school holidays it was working with dad and uh, I always remember that they used to play this game the, the concrete mixer would be getting down to the last couple of barrels and they had to guess how many barrels were left because they didn't want wastage of, of the concrete. And based on the sound, I'd never seen this level of professionalism anywhere, to be honest with you. Based on the sound, these guys would all have bets about how many barrels left and then whoever got the score for the day, because you normally go through three or four concrete mixers, they would be shouted the beer for the day whoever got the <laughs> most accuracy when it comes to how many concrete barrels left in the in the mixer but it, it, it was on those work sites where you know it was 40 odd degrees 100 degrees if you're in in the US or in other markets that um, the professionalism and the work ethic of these people in the middle of summer to be pouring concrete and laboring really heavily taught me that whatever work I do as a pen pusher, as my dad used to say, is never going to be as hard as the work they did. So really reinforced for me, Craig, the importance of the work ethic. You have had such a broad perspective through your various roles in your working career. You know, what started your curious journey to understanding how people think and then make decisions? Uh, I think I was always a student of people as, um, introverts are, uh, they, they take that observation position, whether that's at a, a dinner party, whether that's in a group setting, even when growing up, I took leadership roles in, in, in the soccer teams that I was part of, in the cricket teams, I was always the captains in those teams, and I always enjoyed getting the most out of us as a group, not just as the individual, and I and also realised that for me, I can't ask anything of anybody else that I can't do myself or can't try myself. So, you know, making sure that you're leading by example became really important. But again, to get the most out of people, you've got to understand why they're there. You know, some people turn up to soccer for fun. Some people turn up to cricket so that they can go on a tour to Queensland and uh, break out of the western suburbs of Sydney where I grew up. 
So different motivations get people thinking about it differently. And I always was curious to understand, yeah, they're a good batter and they train hard, but what else was it that I could use to motivate them and what else could I use to, to motivate our team? So it started fairly early along, but I guess the journey to listening a little bit more deeply was kind of prompted by people making observations back at me rather than me going, wow, listening's really important. People kept saying to me, wow, you're amazing at listening. Can you teach our team how to do that? Can you show me how to do that? And uh, quite often in my head, I was giggling to myself going, well, everybody listens like this, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so understanding that, you know, obviously quite young around the, the people aspects, working in huge multinational companies like Microsoft can provide many incredible opportunities. What doors opened for you that really allowed you to see the power of questioning and then more importantly, the the intricacies of listening? There's kind of multiple examples. The first hint for me should have been the fact that I always held the team meetings. People had to go to the contact center for one hour a month but and they had to come back to the team meeting and talk about what they learned when they listened in the contact center. You know, for those of you who haven't worked in multinational organizations, you may be surprised, you may be shocked that they rarely spend time with customers. The closest they actually get to customers is PowerPoint slides or Excel spreadsheets that tabulate graphs that tell them what the customer groups are saying. In Australia, there was uh, every day nearly 7 million people using Microsoft products every day. So the ability to have a conversation without people saying, can you fix my computer was a, a bit limited. So when I briefed advertising agencies, for example, they always were used to being briefed about an advertising campaign with the, uh, with the marketing director telling them what to come back with, whereas I took them out to visit customers. So every briefing was actually done by a customer rather than by me and my team. And the agencies loved working with us because A, we were different, B, we were always talking about the customer, and C, they could hear these rich, powerful words and problems that people were, were struggling with in, in technology. So for, for me, that, that listening played an interesting role in that regard, my role as a people manager. But one time it got really frustrating, Craig. I was... Um, and still am passionate about next generation leaders and I went on to some recruitment stands at universities and people were just walking past us at Microsoft and I, and I got to the point where I was just go, moved out of the stand and stood in the flow and asked people, you know, what do they think about Microsoft and too many people were saying, I'm not a software programmer, why would I join Microsoft? And I said, you could have a career in accounting, you could have a career in customer service as a lawyer, as a human resources professional, as a salesperson, um, event management. There were so many things that they could do, but they only had one view of the world. So our employer brand was broken. I went back to our vice president of, of our area in Australia and said, our employer brand is broken. I'm going to come back and present to you in uh, a month about what we're going to do about it. And I spent the next 30 days going and speaking to every graduate who'd left our organization and joined the competition, every graduate who was still with our organization to understand what they got out of working with Microsoft. And as a result of that, we rebuilt the micro, Microsoft Graduate Program in Australia, and it's called Microsoft Prodigy now. It's got a brand name, and it's about 12 years down the track, and I'm a proud granddaddy for that. But it got taken to 26 subsidiaries around the world, and all we did was listen 
to what we weren't offering and then created a program to solve that problem there. And Tracy said to me, you know, if you could teach the world to, if you could code how you listen, if you could teach the world how to listen, you could change the world. And I said, Tracy, when you mean code, do you mean code code or code? And she said, no, I mean code code, as in write it into software. Um, so I thought about that for about 30 seconds and dismissed it as something that was too hard. How could you possibly code anything um, as it relates to listening? As we'll probably chat later on, it's fairly simple to do now with technology. And um, that, that kind of really was the turning point for me that started this journey into teaching 100 million people how to listen. Your work, were, your work provides the opportunity to stimulate growth and development of many people in leadership roles. Before mm. we dive really into the listening aspects, we're just going to talk about a little bit about leadership here. Mm. What are the common characteristics you find with the people that you're working with? In terms of the leaders that we're working with? Yeah, in, in terms of the leaders and what they're looking for. Yeah. I, I guess I'm in a really privileged position because I get to work across leaders, not only in Australia, but I'm working with leaders out of North America and Europe and uh, also the United Kingdom with the wonderful technology that enables us to do that today. And I think for leaders, uh, things that they want and the things they struggle with, I think you can't talk about either without the other. I think one of the things leaders struggle with today is how do they take a long-term perspective while delivering on short-term results? I think that's a really big struggle. I work in a lot of systems that are driven by quarters. They literally count 13 weeks and they break the 13 weeks and each week down into eight hour slots. It's a bit of a treadmill from that, but there's a lot of pressure for customers for them to hold the long term, but very few of them do. And yet those organizations that can keep the long term tend to outperform those who outperform in the short term because they're not built on the right kind of foundations. I think the other thing that I notice in the leaders that I work with is they're very conscious of the system. And when I talk about the system, it's both their internal organizational system as well as the ecosystem that they interact with. I think good managers deliver results within their organization and great leaders create multi-generational impact outside their organization. They're conscious not only of what the organization's delivering for customers and profit, but what's the impact on society as well. I'm working with a regulator at the moment, and a lot of the things they're thinking about, they're thinking on multi-10-year horizons about how to keep um, people safe. And yet the struggle is they have daily pressure from the media. So balancing that tension is really tough. And so as a leader, one of the things I'm spending a lot of time with is how do they have the presence of mind not to react always? How do they have the presence of mind to just stay in the moment and go, will this matter in a month? Will this matter in a year? Will this matter in a decade? And just take a breath and go, okay, probably not. I can still address it, but I don't have to address it in a reactionary way. I can address it in a way that's conscious of the longer-term implications. Unfortunately for a lot of the leaders I work with, Craig, long terms a year. Yeah. You know, the life, lifespan of people in these roles tops um, 
three years, typically 18 to 24 months. Yeah, that, that conscious leadership you spoke about there is extremely important. So how would the people you work with describe your leadership style? Oh, yeah, I, I do this great game called the three-word game. Um, I always ask people when I finish an assignment to describe me in three words and challenging is a very consistent word I get from them. Um, pragmatic, practical, sincere, careful, thoughtful. So because in my case, I've probably sat in their chair because I've done so many different roles throughout my own career, I know the kinds of pressures that they face. And a lot of them appreciate the fact that I can detach them in the conversation by going, is this what it feels like right now for you? And they go, wow, you've absolutely nailed it. And I go, but with a perspective of a decade, will this matter? And in most cases, no. So my favorite quote came from a, a chief marketing officer that I worked with in a, in a global company. And he said, most coaches ask the questions that you know you want to answer. Unfortunately, Oscar asked the questions that you need to answer. So Ray was very clear that I was, I was digging a little bit further. A lot of my coaching work for them as leaders is not to work on the situation, but to help them notice how they're thinking about the situation. And is that a pattern? And how does that pattern play out? What about for you, Craig? What kinds of ways are you described in your leadership style? It's a lot around challenging, mm. uh, courageous, very caring, uh, learner. I think learner's always there. You're, you're someone that teaches and coaches people and, and brings stuff to life. Mm. Uh, and, and I suppose on that curious aspect, it's a lot around the questioning and the ability yeah. to, to ask questions that stimulate a different response to what they've always provided. Uh, mm. They're probably the key ones that come up. What are the leaders struggling with that you work with, you know, in contrast to the ones I mentioned? What would be additive? Yeah, so you talked a lot about there, about the, you know, balancing that future with the now, and that comes up quite often. I think for a lot of them too, it's, it's trying to figure out what's the difference between performance and productivity. Mm. And how do I actually go from being a leader of high performance to being a high performing leader? Mm. And, you know, we, we see that a lot in sport as well, where... We, especially when we go into Olympics, for instance, I'm working with a couple of Olympic teams at the moment and because it's a one-off, one every four years and most athletes or most coaches or high performance staff only get to, get to go to one in their lifetime. Yeah. And it's a goal and a dream since they're a little kid. So they're, they're very excited and they throw everything at it and become extremely insular. And so the coaches and the high performance staff are just focused on that athlete. So by the time they get to the pinnacle event or the, the Olympics, they're exhausted, they're stressed out, mm -hmm. they're quite often overwhelmed, they're withdrawn. Sometimes they go missing because it's just like, my job's done now and then disappear. And at mm -hmm. that moment, and this happens in when you have crisis or when you have very busy periods or projects in a workforce, is that the athlete and so we'll look at it from both an athlete and a employee the same thing happens they're looking for confidence they're looking for reassurance 
and they will pick up the most minute acts of communication. So if you don't show that confidence for them and you show some level of doubt, they will amplify it because they're, they're seeking for the smallest things. So mm-hmm. it's about how you turn up and show up in those situations that really, really matter, that count. And I think it's no different in whatever setting when it comes down to a pressure situation where things are on the line. Why it's just that little bit of extra confidence that you can provide them or that energy. And quite often, the ability to listen rather than give advice. Mm. Because they already know what's going on. It's just a matter of just allowing them to understand that they know they're ready. They've done the work. Mm. Yeah, one of the things you've just taken me through is an interesting exploration and there's a parallel here that a lot of the leaders I work with, their identity is completely constructed around them in their work setting. And if something happens in their work setting, whether that's a restructure or they have a bad performance year, all of a sudden their world is shattered because everything is wrapped up in that. So a lot of the leaders I work with, I, I'm very deliberate. What are you constructing around that? What are your practices around exercise? What are your practices around taking time out for yourself? When was the last time you booked a holiday when you were on the last holiday rather than getting to the end of the year completely exhausted? Um, because the point I make to them is you're role modeling everything to your organization. So it's it's an interesting little game that they have to play with around what identity they're constructing for themselves because in the long term their workplace identity becomes ultimately irrelevant and it's more me challenging them to ask them well what's the legacy you really want to leave when you're no longer on this planet what have you done and that's not going to be bound in a spreadsheet that's got a profit and loss sitting at the bottom of it it's going to be something much more significant for sure so you're on a quest talking about legacies you're on a quest to create 100 million deep listeners in the world that's a Mm. that's a big number yeah it started off as a small number (laughs) in a conversation i was sitting down with a mentor and i said oh look you know some a couple of people challenged me to teach me teach me how you listen and i'm kind of talking to my mentor about how do i do that and um, I said, look, I think, you know, a million people will stretch my thinking. And Matt said to me, great, no problem. Come back next month and tell me how you're going to do it with an extra zero on the end. I said, what do you mean? He said, come back next month and tell me if you can do 10 million. And I went, oh, really? Anyway, I came back next month over a cup of coffee. I said, yeah, I figured out how to do 10 million. He goes, yeah, I knew you would. Make it 100 million. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> And he said, look, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to send you away again and you're going to come back. I want to I teach you about thinking about the problem in a much bigger way. And he, he said something that really stuck with me. If you can't achieve your goal in your lifetime, then it's ambitious enough to chase. And I thought, wow. So, you know, 100 million is aspirational. I think I'm up, up with all the media work and training I've done so far over the last or five years we did a count last week with Nell and I who's my business manager I think we're up to about a quarter of a million so we've got a hell of a long way to go but what it does do is get me thinking about how do I use technology to do that how do I use others around the world to do that I've had a request to have the book translated into Dutch I've had a request the book translated into Portuguese. I've had a request to have the book translated in French. And if I didn't have a goal of 100 million deep listeners in the world, it would never happen. 
So for me, uh, it, it's, you know, Matt really stretched my thinking out there. And now I'm starting to think about how technology can do that. And I've been approached by a number of leadership coaches to go, we have lots of stuff in our leadership programs about speaking and change management, but we have bugger all about listening. Um, how do we integrate your stuff in there as well? So that's kind of part of the thing that sits behind this hundred million deep listeners in the world. Ultimately, I need to get listening embedded into school teacher curriculum. I don't know about you, Craig. I know the Kiwis are much more enlightened. You probably had a listening teacher at school. You probably had listening classes in New Zealand, if I, if I think about it. I think it was just when the teachers told us to shut up and sit in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we all got taught maths, we got yeah. taught English, but we didn't get taught how to listen. And if we can put listening into the curriculum, I'd just like one course to be taught to teachers at university. That's all. If that's all I achieve in the next 30 years of my life, I'd be really excited because then I've got a multi-generational impact and it's systemic and it's global and it's all those kinds of things. But in this quest, you know, the reality is the struggle for me is I spend 93% of my day listening. And to achieve my goal, I've got to spend much, 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 much more time speaking. Yeah. And it's really counterintuitive and it's really hard for me and it really pushes me out of my comfort zone and it's something I struggle with every day. The world is changing at a, at a rapid pace. So why does listening matter in leadership more than ever? Well, it's that very nature of change that creates more room for conflict, more room for confusion, more room for chaos, because communication is something that's really critical to a project in a corporate setting, a project in a public sector setting. If all you did was think about this, all the great disasters whether that you think about the Deepwater Horizon disaster, the oil rig that blew up off the coast of Louisiana, the global financial crisis, and I'm only talking in the last decade, these are all beautiful examples of the lack of listening. In 2005, there was a doctor, Michael Burry, and a, a very unknown electrical engineer who became an economist for the IMF, uh, Dr. Rajan Radgu, he, both of those people, three years out, had predicted how the global financial crisis would come about. In fact, Dr. Rajan spoke in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to a group of central bankers three years before and told them exactly what was going to happen. He said, you all live in great houses, but your plumbing is stuck and there's a very big smell. You're not going to smell it straight away, but when it does, it's really going to stink. And the Treasury spokesperson at the time, a guy called Larry Summers, castigated this guy in the room and basically said his critique was poor and lacked in any fundamental economic assumptions. Uh, I've heard an interview with Dr. Rajan much later on. He went on to become the central banker for India. And uh, Larry Summers has never apologized to him for that comment. And if everybody would have just taken a moment in that room, it was all the central bankers of the world. It was nearly 80 of them in the room. If they would have listened to Dr. Rajan, um, 
but they dismissed him because he was an electrical engineer. They dismissed him because he was Indian. They dismissed him because he read Tolstoy and Tolkien. He was not a merchant, a banker or a central banker from central casting. He was a vegetarian. He was very modest, but nobody listened to him. And I think in the workplace, Chris, Craig, a lot of people are in situations where leaders aren't listening not only to their managers but to their customers or their frontline people and as a result we get short-termism we get people making decisions that result in great short-term wins but very quickly uh, customer trust is broken as an example you know when people leave companies they always say i didn't leave my company i left my manager And, and we hear that quote a lot in leadership But the next question that you need to ask is, what's the number one reason why people leave their managers? And the number one reason quoted in all the workplace literature is, they don't listen to me. I told them many times, we can't do this or we can't do that. And it's that lack of listening that caused that person to leave. We've done some research, 1,410 people, and one of the questions we ask them is, what does a poor manager do in a one-on-one when it comes to listening? And uh, a third of the responses were, I'd love to have a one-on-one with my manager. They, they, they don't even have them. And uh, as a result of that, that's a clear signal that the manager's not listening to their staff. So the cost is huge. Like that, right now it's $4.7 trillion and still counting the cost of the GFC. It's $53 billion for that um, oil world disaster in uh, Louisiana and let alone the 11 lives that were lost so and in the Australian context recently we've seen many systemic examples of not listening banking royal commissions aged care royal commissions uh, royal commissions into uh, the abuse of children by institutions all of these are systemic like a listening because every one of those complaints were logged in systems but the difference between hearing and listening is taking action And I think a lot of leaders don't do the second part of listening there. Talking about listening, many people listen to their voice inside their head and the stories that are ruminating in there rather than actually listening to what is being said. How do people let go of that voice? Yeah, well, you touch on one of the great myths of listening. The biggest myth about listening is to be focused on the speaker. It's the wrong place to start. To be available to listen, you have to start and stop listening to yourself. Most of us have stories in our own head that block us from having the conversation with the person in front of us. You'll walk from most of the leaders I work with are going from meeting to meeting to meeting. They're going and they're changing modalities. They might be in a video conference for one hour. They might go to a face-to-face. They might go to a coffee shop. And they just don't have time to collect their thoughts to be completely present with that person. And the reality is it becomes amplified. It becomes worse in the conversation. One of the really important things about listening that if this was the only thing I ever taught the world, I would be grateful. I speak at 125 words a minute. You listen at 400. So you can listen three times faster than what I can speak. Now, it's happening for you right now while you're listening to me. You're going, hurry up, Oscar. 
oh, I've got to go and do that shopping list. I've got to pick up the kids. I've got to organize the plumber to come over. And all of a sudden you go, come on, back into the conversation. And for a lot of us, we listen in black and white and listening in color is what deep listening is all about. So if I was to give three tips for getting present, Craig, three tips to get present is number one, put your phone into flight mode. And if you've got a laptop that's got notifications and sounds, and switch them off. Number two, a hydrated brain is a listening brain. So drink a glass of water for every meeting you attend and offer a glass of water to those who are participating in that meeting. A bit different if it's over the phone. And the third one is notice your breathing. The deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen. An oxygenated brain is a listening brain as well. Now I have research that talks about all the other four levels of listening, but the reality is we can't listen to anybody else until we're clear and we're available. No one would ever go to a classical musical concert with their earbuds in listening to the concert that was coming up while they were playing. But for a lot of us, we have a dialogue, a monologue in our head while we're talking to somebody else. The most powerful thing we can do is to be present be available to those people and if we remove distractions we're nearly halfway there so i think for a lot of us as leaders we think about productivity oh if i keep my phone open and keep keep on top of my email i can be present but in that moment you're going to miss a really important non-verbal signal you're not going to be listening to the context you're not going to be listening to what's unsaid which is the ninja move of listening and ultimately you're not going to be listening for meaning so i think for a lot of us just noticing that we're distracted would be a huge step forward. In your book, Deep Listening, there is a quote, our ability to listen is not just one of our most critical skills. It is fundamental and essential to the survival of our species. Can you unpack this for our listeners? Yeah, listening is your birthright. So if you know the simple fact that at 20 weeks you can distinguish your mother's voice from any other sound in the outside world. At 32 weeks you can distinguish Beethoven from Bon Jovi from Beaver. So hearing and listening is the very first thing you learn even before the act of birth. And at the act of birth what's the first thing you do to prove you're alive? You come into the world and you scream. And we spend the rest of our lives screaming and trying to be noticed. But that fundamental skill that protects the survival of the species is that 125-400 rule. It's our ability to not only be able to listen to what we're focused on in listening, but listening peripherally. What else is going on? Was that little brush in the forest the sound of a saber-toothed tiger coming to get our people? Or was that merely the sound of an elephant? So listening protected humans as they work through the savannah because one of those skills is their ability to listen beyond what the current noise around them was and try and make sense of patterns as it relates to the noise around them. So ironically, the first skill we learn is how to listen and I've interviewed a number of palliative care nurses and doctors. The last skill that leaves us is our ability to hear when we pass away as well. So it's kind of at the beginning of life, it's also at the end of life as well. So there's a, a beautiful circularity to what hearing and listening can bring to us as humans. 
You mentioned that words are the ingredients of a great conversation, but you need a recipe to make sense mm. of all that words. What are some techniques people can utilize to find or discover those recipes? So two things there, Craig. One is know, know the backstory of the person. Now, for a lot of us, we don't take that little bit of extra time just to get the backstory. And it could be as simple as, hey, what's brought us here today? Or could you just take me back a little bit further and explain how we got here today? So one of those recipes is knowing the backstory. I could say to you right now, um, uh, a man is being interviewed by the police and he's just been a participant on a TV quiz show. You would say that movie is what, Craig? Oh, I'm not sure. <laughs> You'd struggle, right? Yeah. Let me let me tell you about exactly the same movie. Jamal and his and his brother Salim lost their mum at the age of seven in a riot in Mumbai. They were taken over by gangsters who taught them how to pick pockets and beg for money. Luckily for everybody, Salim was able to get a job in a contact center where we were taught the most random trivia about TV shows in the West, which made him a perfect contestant for the TV show Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He's answering all these questions flawlessly, and all of a sudden he's being investigated by the police. Now, same information, but I've given you the full backstory, and now you're going to say that movie is... Slumdog Millionaire. Exactly. But too many leaders talk to their staff, talk to their customers with the first context. They give a few little crumbs of ingredients and what people ultimately want is they want the menu first, the recipe second, and the ingredients third. Most leaders talk recipe occasionally, ingredients mostly, and rarely talk about what's on the menu for people to pay attention. The other tip, Craig, is Notice patterns in the way people speak. They, if you're listening deeply, meaning you're not just listening to the words, but you're listening to how they're constructed, do they speak in detail? Or do they talk in big picture and abstract terms? Do they talk consistently about the past? Do they talk consistently about the future? Do they talk about themselves? Or do they talk about organizations and teams? There's three really simple orientations for people to think about that helps leaders to match the way they speak to those people in a way that's effective for them. So for a lot of us as leaders, when we're dealing with large groups, we can't figure out if they're big picture or, or, or details. So we have to speak in a way that combines both ways. And the way we do that in a really effective way is to use metaphors, analogies, and stories because it connects with the most innate emotions in humans. Yet most leaders will talk about KPIs most leaders will talk about performance benchmarks. Most leaders will talk about dashboards and everybody will fall asleep. But if they can tell a simple story about the fact that we all need to eat our broccoli before we can get on to dessert, it means we have to do the basics first and everyone can connect with that story. So I think for a lot of us when we listen, we don't listen for context. So we don't listen for the past or the future. We don't listen for patterns. We don't listen about whether this organization is very internally focused or it's very externally focused. There's another example of the layers 
um, you could look at when it's listening for the context there as well. Too many of us can't do it because we're distracted. We're still on our mobile phones. We've got a laptop. We're not present enough to even notice these things because this takes focus. This is a higher level of performance for a leader. Why is the ancient Chinese wisdom of the character Ting so relevant to the work that you do? So, so Ting in Mandarin was taught in, in the 12th century, and it was taught to uh, by the court of the emperor to the next generation of emperors. And it was taught to them, Ting means in Mandarin, it means to listen. And, and the two is very important. It means that listening in the ancient ways of, of the Mandarin, but also in the ways of the Maori in the way of the Aborigines of Australia, in the ways of the Inuit of North America, in the ways of many, many ancient traditions, they are taught how to use silence as a signal of authority, uh, the signal of presence, of a signal of great wisdom. Yet in the West, for example, we use the term pregnant pause, we use the term awkward silence. So. Ting, as a six-dimensional character, gives you six ways to think about listening. So listening is not only what you hear, but it's also, are you being respectful? Are you focused? Are you giving your full attention to the person in front of you? Are you feeling what they're saying, not just hearing what they're saying? And Ting is a very integrated character. It's uh, most of the Chinese uh, written characters don't exist standalone. Uh, Westerners tend to deconstruct their elements, and that's how we get the six elements of Ting when we think about listening. But the reality is that we're teaching the next generation of emperors how to listen because it was crucial for them not only to listen to their military leaders, it was important for them to listen to their financial leaders, it was also important for them to listen to their medical leaders, and it was also important for them to learn to listen not only to the court but also to the dominion on which they were being part of their empires and listening to the people there. So whether it's Ting in Mandarin, whether it's Daderi in some of the Australian Aboriginal tribes, they all have words for a very active listening, a very connected community listening, and a listening that values not just what's said, but what's unsaid as well, and, and they learn to value silence. And for a lot of leaders in the workplace, if you were building on muscles and you were going from silver to gold in the listening Olympics, silver would be put away all those distractions. Gold would be to learn to listen to what's not said. It sounds like counterintuitive, but if you can learn to listen to what's not said, the reason it's really important is the neuroscience is this, Craig, we speak at 125 words a minute, but we can think at up to 900 words a minute. So the likelihood the first thing out of somebody's mouth is what they mean. There's a one in nine chance or 11% that what they say is what they mean, yet we wouldn't go to a doctor and get an 11% chance of surviving an, an operation. We'd ask for a second opinion. Yet when it comes to the crucial element of human communication, we never ask for a second opinion. It's so rare for somebody to say, Craig, tell me more about that. I'm curious. What else is behind that? And if you do, you'll notice them taking a deep breath and they'll use these beautiful code words. They'll say things like, well, 
what I should have told you was, or actually the most important thing we haven't discussed is, and then finally they might say, hmm, now that I've thought about it, Craig, here's what we need to really talk about. But none of us ever get there because we think it's a ping pong match of your idea, my idea, your idea, my idea. If we just go down one level more depth and get another 125 words out, you can usually crack it straight away. But again, too many leaders will be in work in progress meetings and ask the obvious question rather than say, tell me more. So gold medal, Craig, tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) So you talked about gold medals earlier um, about running marathons. So what do you do to lead an active and healthy lifestyle? Yeah, a very good friend of mine who I met during my time at Microsoft, Ewan Hunt, passed away a couple of years ago from leukemia, and he struggled with that for about 11 years. And uh, about, yeah, 12 years ago, my mum had breast cancer. A year before that, my dad had prostate cancer, and I came across an organization called Cantu. So they teach people to run to swim, to do triathlons, to do trial runs. They've recently taken some people to Kilimanjaro, recently taken people to um, the Lara Pinta Trail. And it's, it's a cancer fundraising charity and it teaches people like me to get off the couch and get into half marathons, marathons and swim. So summer season is really simple. Me and my wife on a Thursday night and a Saturday morning, we ocean swim. And we typically are surrounded by 60 or 70 other crazy cantours, half of which are first-time swimmers learning how to swim. And then in uh, in the wintertime, Wednesday nights and Saturday mornings, we're doing half marathons or marathons. And uh, I love swimming on a white line. It's the best way to clear my mind. It's the best form of meditation for me. And I love anything, uh, getting past 12 to 14 Ks as well on a run, same thing. I just into a flow. Everything I've had to think about has left my mind and I'm getting into the deeper places there. So swim, run, summer swim, winter run. That's pretty much, that accounts for at least 48 weeks of our, of our year. <laughs> that active meditation is, is very powerful and it's something that I know myself is you know, what really allows me to declutter and clear and then really let the, the thought processes and the creative juices flow when they need to. Mm. We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions mm. or in your case, listen deeper. <laughs> when was the last time you did something for the first time? Uh, this week, <laughs> so this week I launched my, uh, I've launched an online training program. So I've got some, sent it out for prototypes. So the process of learning how to capture everything I've just been talking about, but presented in a way that makes sense to somebody other than me and record videos and put together worksheets and all these kinds of things, um, it, it it went out live for feedback on Tuesday this week. It, it started about started as I thought about a year ago, and I was petrified of coding this stuff down and recording myself on video and learning all that stuff was really hard. And I thought, wow, 
um, there's so many firsts, you know, since I left corporate life, my corporate life was bound by spreadsheets and PowerPoints and Word documents and emails. And, you know, since then, I've kind of written a couple of books. I've launched a award-winning podcast. I've um, built this training program. Um, I've influenced and trained people all around the world on the topic. And, uh, yeah, lots of firsts, but uh, this most current first is uh, launching an online program, I guess, for for the leadership coaches I mentioned earlier on who want to integrate their stuff into their leaders' programs. Brilliant. What is the one question that you would love to solve? It's the question I struggle with is why is listening implied in education rather than explicitly taught? That's the, that's the thing that people... People always ask me well, three questions. Question number one, how do I teach my kids how to listen better? Question number two, why didn't we learn to listen at school? And question number three is, why doesn't my spouse listen to me? <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I think if we, could, if we could get in primary school and high school, just one topic on how to listen. And we know plus, minus, divide, subtract. I just want people to understand what are those four things when it comes to listening. Most people know when somebody's not listening to them. They don't need training for that. Equally, they know when somebody listens to them well. And my most memorable question is, I always prompt the audience and I say, hands up if you had a listening teacher at school. Nobody puts their hand up. I said, put your hand up if you remember the teacher that got the most out of you at school. If you remember their name, stand up. Stay standing if they were the person who listened to what you meant. And everybody stays standing up because it's the teachers that have the biggest influence in your life are the ones that have listened beyond the words. They listen to where you're coming from and they listen to what you want to achieve. And there's a lot of great listening role models as teachers that we've all had through our career. And I think they've role modeled to us what great listening is, not because of what we said to them or what we thought they heard, but they could look deeper into us. They could look into what we wanted to do, what matters to us and what matters the most to us is what we're trying to do to make meaning out of life. And, uh, you know, for me, I was lucky. I had three amazing teachers in different parts of my schooling who basically said, your work ethic will get you everywhere and uh, just encouraged me to keep up the hard work. And uh, I guess it wasn't until I ran into a world where I discovered I had a bad relationship with numbers when I went into the accounting profession that my whole world got turned upside down. But in that moment where I discovered that I had dyscalculus, it's launched me on this amazing path, Craig, to build 100 million deep listeners in the world. It wouldn't, I don't think it would have happened if I was putting together spreadsheets and being a great accountant today. So last question for today. How do you know when you're in a peak state of mind? One, the time goes a little bit more quickly. And you, you know, kind of... I remember about four weeks ago, I was I was running with somebody because now I'm a mentor in this running program that I was talking about, and they'd never run past um, 16 kilometres, and we were on a 
18 kilometre run that day. And when they were coming back and they said to me, wow, that second half just felt like it went so quick. And all I was doing in that time was getting them focused on what will it feel like when you're finished and what will it mean to you when you're finished. And in that moment, that was a good example of I was in flow because I was channeling them. I was channeling their energy and their spirit. And it was it was beyond a physical experience for me. I just felt that we were very connected as two conscious human beings doing something together, me showing them the way and them having the courage to find something in themselves that they'd never found before. And uh, Kerry just gave me a big hug and a smile at the end and said, wow, I couldn't have done that by myself. And I think in that moment, I just went, yeah, me neither. <laughs> couldn't have done it without her either. And, and in that moment, it just, you know, that last probably hour of that run, just felt like it was gone in about 10 minutes and it was just very connected. You've shared some incredible insights and some outstanding ideas on how we can be better leaders and better listeners in this conversation. So how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you if they wish to get in touch? Yeah, just visit listeningmyths.com and uh, that'll help you get five really simple tips in the journey to become a deeper listener. And if that's all you do, just go and visit listeningmyths.com. The the system will make you aware of all the other places you can connect with me, Craig. Brilliant. So, Oscar, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed the journey you've taken uh, taken us on, you know, starting from your early days as a child and being involved with multinationalities in an area where you had to learn and communicate in different ways and it opened up your horizon so to speak when it comes to how do you connect with people the way you approached your the adversity of finding out you had dyscalculus and how you took that and inspired someone else to be an amazing accountant inside that firm to then going on and leading a lot of people with inside some big corporations like Microsoft and Vodafone. And then be able to take those lessons you learnt now and share them to the rest of the world through your own entrepreneurial journey. The power of deep listening is something that really caught, uh, caught my attention again. And it's something I hadn't done since I was an athlete. We would do a lot of breathing techniques. And I listened mm. to one of your podcasts the other day and it was around the power of breathing and how that affects listening and it it changed me again and I realized why haven't I been doing this for the last 10 or 15 years because I the profound impact that had on me on the ability to listening to what you were saying in that moment was incredible and now I've since then been able to utilize the breathing techniques a lot more effectively when I'm in different situations and really notice the change that I can actually hear that context and feel the difference when I'm listening to people and inside those conversations. I look forward to seeing the journey as it evolves and how you take listening into the classroom in the future and inspire 100 million people around the world to be deep listeners. So thank you, Oscar, for such a wonderful conversation. And I look forward to carrying the conversation on in the future. Craig, thanks for listening. 
This week's Active CEO wellness tip is own your own space. If you have one skill and you're really strong at it, it can easily be copied, allowing a competitor to get a step ahead in your space. However, if you stack your skills, you can own your own space, get a step ahead of your competitors, be the authority, and be the expert in your field. You have to have that key differentiating factor. And by just having one skill, it's, as you said, it's easily to be copied. So take one skill, learn it in real depth, then add another skill that connects with it and take that into more depth add another skill. So you keep stacking skills and then that allows you to create your own space, your unique collection of skills that allows you to stand out from the crowd. Thank you for listening to a wonderful conversation with Oscar Trimboli talking about deep listening benefits performance on episode 55 of the Active CEO podcast. As leaders, we can get caught in short-term results rather than long-term impact. With lots of demands from owners, board members, staff, or customers, we can be blinded by the quick wins and lose sight of the horizon. Having someone on your side to keep you on track, ask the right questions, and allow you to paint a clearer picture of the future is incredibly important as a leader. We provide executive performance coaching to ensure your focus remains on the business rather than being in the business. To learn more about what we do, please do not hesitate to contact us about breaking the CEO code and breaking the coach code by going to www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.